I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go-team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. How's my Boston friend today, John? I'm uh, glad that we are now recording another episode of flight safety detectives. Unfortunately, we are still doing it from afar, which is killing me because I can't throw stuff at you. I can't see all the faces you're making all the time when I say something stupid. So how are you doing today, John? I'm doing fine. Just another day in paradise, locked up. But it's a Friday, and hopefully... uh, my daily drives. I haven't. I did not do a daily drive today. So tomorrow I'll probably do a, a little longer one, out exploring the roads, staying in the vehicle, just looking at life and see what's going on out there. But I I am troubled a little bit by the number of people I see out there without masks on. Boy, it's just uh, it seems to be always young people too. And you know the funny thing is I was thinking about this the other day because I have a 19 year old son. And he's a college guy. And and while he is very disciplined because of me and my wife and, and the, you know, our, I mean, especially with my travel, because the last thing I, I want to do is bring something home that I didn't leave home, <laughs> you know, with. So and so he's very disciplined. His his posse, if you will, his group of friends, they're very good. But I agree with you that there is this attitude amongst the general uh, population that, you know, masks are for sissies and things like that. But, you know, you think about discipline and we talk about discipline in aviation all the time, operational discipline. That is doing the right thing, even when nobody's looking. We do it as pilots. We do it as mechanics. It's expected that you're not going to take shortcuts. You're not going to rationalize things away. You're not going to find reasons why not to do something when you should be doing something. And and it's sad because, you know, I wish the population had that operational discipline that we're required to have because, uh, you know, that's why we are as safe as we are in aviation is because of that sense of discipline. Yes, and it's... you know the discipline in the in South Korea, Taiwan, they knocked this virus down the first go around because of the mass and the and the confinement, the quarantine, the stay at home that that we didn't do across the board, and we're paying for it now. And until we do it, we're going to continue to pay for it. Yep. And you know, I'm I'm back in my travel routine now, so uh, you know, I'm cognizant of everybody and everything because 
You know, I, I can't, I mean, I cannot afford to be laid up uh, trying to do my job. And, um, and the last thing I want to do is be a, a germ spreader if, in fact, I am immune to it or a carrier of it. I sure as heck don't want to be spreading it around to anybody else. So, yeah, it is, it is all about that discipline. And, you know, I hope as, as people get more comfortable and really understand the significance of this. I mean, look, it's a new way of life. I preach this to people all the time. I preach it definitely to my family. And that is we as humans are the most flexible and adaptable, but we are also the most vulnerable. And when you think about a machine, yeah, a machine, a computer is flexible and adaptable to a certain extent, but the best machine in the front end of an airplane is the human. But again, as we've talked in a previous show about some physiological things that happen to humans, that's what makes us susceptible. And to a disease, something that's, you know, contracted either by breathing or sticking your fingers in your mouth or whatever. I mean, that's the vulnerability. And why not err on the side of safety like you and I do with just about everything we do in life? You take it to the safe side rather than challenge because you can't change history. We can't change history. You can only change your future so that you're more proactive. Yeah, eventually this will go away to an extent. It's going to be like the flu. It'll always be with us the rest of our life. But we're going to find ways to mitigate its effects. But until that happens, we have just got to show each other a high level of respect. And regardless of your position, whether it's political or religious or anything else, we owe that to each other to respect each other's airspace, if you will. And it is what it is. And and if we would just get off our high horses and just do it, it'd make life so much easier, I think. That's just my personal view <laughs> based on all the ridiculousness that I watch every single day. Yes. Let's get this behind us. Everybody pay attention and keep their masks on until it's safe to not to keep them on. Well, Greg, I was just earlier today looking at some of the emails that have come in. You got a number of them on similar issues, and uh, it, there's a number that keep coming back to an accident you did for almost 40 years ago, 35 years ago, and that was Eastern Airlines 980 in South America, Bolivia. This question came in after our show where we talked about you getting ready to uh, launch what happens when the bell goes off, so to speak. Uh-huh. The listener questioned, what was it like for you to go down there some nine months or 10 months later after the airplane had crashed and get ready to go up on the mountain? So he's talking about the bell went off, but nobody nobody responded for a long time, which isn't true. But you might answer that half of the question, too. What happened in the beginning and then what happened that brought you down there? Well, Eastern Airlines Flight 980 was a Boeing 727 that in 1985 crashed on top of a 21,000-foot mountain. Uh, it happened January 1st, 1985, which was really the start of one of commercial aviation's worst accident years where we had one of the highest total fatality rates in that particular year. This was the first accident, uh, 29 folks on board, including the crew, coming up from Ascension, Paraguay with an intermediate stop in La Paz and then on to Miami. The aircraft crashed at night 
it had drifted off course. They were using Omega navigation at the time, drifted off course 12 miles. They were in a cruise descent, struck the top of Mount Ilamani that was obscured by weather and snow. And in that particular area, it's the Andes Mountains. So the top of the mountains are, are glaciers. So it's deep snow up there. The airplane went missing, never ended up in, um, in La Paz. And the circumstances of that accident were such that the flight crew was a brand new flight crew flying international operations. They had just all gone to training together. So they, they went through their international ops training. And at that particular time, they would send three green pilots, if you will, together through that training. And this whole crew was green. Nobody had a lot of international experience. And they had a Czech airman on board for the flight going southbound out of Miami to Ascension, Paraguay. They had a layover down there. They were on the way back. And on the northbound trip, the, we found out through the investigation that the Czech airman, rather than being in the cockpit to provide advice and guidance to the crew, since they were basically in an initial operating experience period, was sitting in first class rather than in the cockpit. And so you didn't have the benefit of an experienced person to catch possibly mistakes or procedures that needed to be completed in a timely manner. When we were notified here in the United States of the accident, the Bolivian government was responsible because it happened in Bolivia. Now, the Bolivians don't have an NTSB, or at least that time, at that time, they did not. They had a very small civil aviation authority, but Bolivia is not a rich country. They do not have a lot of resources financially or manpower-wise, and they really didn't have the expertise to conduct a major investigation of a Boeing 727. So under ICAO Annex 13, which are the international standards that uh, member states operate under, and you and I have had a previous show about ICAO Annex 13 and how member states operate under that annex, uh, the Bolivians delegated the authority for the investigation to the United States for two reasons. One, it was a flag carrier of the United States, Eastern Airlines, and two, it was a U.S.-built airplane, Boeing. So the NTSB was anointed to get involved and conduct the investigation on behalf of the Bolivian government. But the second part of, of this story is the fact that at the time, because we knew that the airplane had crashed at a very high altitude, you always have to consider the safety of the investigative team. You can't just launch everybody off into wherever an accident happens and expect that the, the, the team's going to go to work. And in this case, you're at 21,000 feet. That in and of itself is a hazardous environment. You're not trying to hurt or kill anybody else doing an investigation. So there were some political ramifications that needed to be worked out. The NTSB did assign a an IIC, an investigator in charge, they did convene the team, but only part of the team traveled to Bolivia, not with the intent to climb the mountain and go to the accident site, but to gather as much data and information that they could on the ground from air traffic control, from all the Eastern Airlines folks that were on the ground, both in La, in La Paz and in Ascension, Paraguay. 
so that they could put all of the backstory information together. And that's how we knew that the Czech airman, when he boarded the aircraft, didn't didn't sit in the cockpit, but in fact was seen by a station agent down in Ascension seated in first class. It was these kinds of details that were being gathered while they were trying to figure out whether or not they were going to send anybody up to the accident site itself because it was in a in a hazardous area. High altitude. The top of that mountain is a glacier. So the snow depths were 30 to 50, and in some cases where the crevasses were 100 feet deep. The airplane hit at around 325 knots plus. So it scattered debris over a very large area up the side of this mountain. And the question was, how are we going to get up there? How are we going to do the investigation? And what is it that we are going to attempt to accomplish up there? And there were some political ramifications. There were some high-profile folks on that airplane. And all of these logistics had to be worked out. But one of the big issues that had to be worked out is when the decision was made to go up on the top of the mountain, who was going to go? And the NTSB, just like the FAA and any other government agency outside the military, cannot knowingly put people in harm's way. And so the board came up with a process of asking for volunteers. Of course, at the time, I was in my 20s. I was the youngest by better than 20 years of the volunteers who put their name in to go on top of this mountain. So as I always say, I was selectively volunteered. I was young, dumb, and expendable. (laughs) So given my youth and the fact that I lived here in Colorado and I've been climbing mountains out here, they figure I had the best chance of survival, getting up there, doing my thing and coming home in one piece. And so I I was volunteered to to put basically an expedition together that uh, would last almost uh, six, seven weeks down in, in Bolivia between going down getting acclimated to the high altitude with a series of intermediate climbs to let my body adjust because we determined that we could only do the climb without oxygen to be efficient. So in order to do that, we were going to carry emergency supplies, had to put a team not only of experts together, which we had, it was a very small team, but then we had to have Sherpas and we had to have enough supply and at least support to get us up there to to be able to do our thing. And the mission at the time, when we did finally decide to go in uh, in October, because that's the dry season down there where we're not getting a lot of snow, was the fact that we were going to try to recover the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder. That was the primary mission. Okay, very good. I think you answered the question. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that you and I um, are are excited about is that we have a very good friend who uh, has decided to um, take this story, which has never really been told, not only on the front side with the investigation, but the back side with other aspects of the more human interest part of this particular accident because of the people that were on this flight 
of course, uh, some of the circumstances surrounding the flight, some of the conspiracy theories that evolved out of this particular flight. They're putting a documentary together, and we're excited because we're getting close. It's uh, it's going to debut after the first of the year, and we're going to have a lot of the folks that are involved in this documentary, some of whom are you know have a name and, and are going to be recognizable. Uh, we're going to have them on our show as we get closer, because you and I had uh, the blessing to uh, to participate in the making of this documentary, and I think it's going to be a great, great story. And I think for our listeners, it's going to be something uh, intriguing and interesting. That uh, you know, they're they're going to learn a lot that uh, that you're never going to read in a book or see in an official report. Yes. I like the New England connection to the story, too, which will come out later. Yeah, the, the, that, that's a fun part of the story as well. Yes. All right, so what a lot of people don't know is we struggle, not struggle, but we spend a lot of time looking for uh, accidents to talk about and go through them and looking for those accidents that have some meaning and some takeaways for everybody to, uh, to benefit from. So I recently found one involving a 421 aircraft, and it has maintenance involvement, which always tickles my fancy, always looking for those, and it also has some pilot involvement. So, Greg, I'll let you kick it off, the 421 accident. This was a, uh, a Cessna 421 that had been previously operated as a freighter. So it was kind of a dog airplane um, a company bought the airplane, they refurbished the aircraft, put a very nice interior in it, put a very, very nice uh, glass cockpit panel display, had all the latest and greatest, the weather and the terrain and everything else, and turned it into a very nice airplane. And um, a gentleman bought the airplane, uh, he had a large family, and so he bought the airplane to transport his family, his wife and his six kids around. Um, on this particular day, they had flown out of Florida and had gone to St. Louis for a family reunion. Um, he only had uh, five of his kids on board, himself and his wife. And uh, after spending several days in Missouri, they were on their way back to Destin, Florida. I believe it was Destin. En route, they were at 21,000 feet. And of course, having onboard weather on board uh, through XM. We know as pilots that uh, we've learned since its inception that some of that weather gets delayed. And while ADSB has improved the uplink for more timely weather, this particular instance, because this accident happened back in 2011, there was a lag in updating the weather. So the pilot was trying to transit through an area of convective activity, a line of thunderstorms. As he was getting bounced around and blasted at 21,000 feet coming through the storm, unbeknownst to him, the aircraft took a lightning strike. He didn't know it um, because where the air lightning actually struck was behind the cockpit in the area of the engine nacelle. And so he would have never seen it. He saw probably flashes of lightning, but he didn't know that he actually got struck. He exited out the, uh, the other side of this line and experienced a rough running engine. And from trying to troubleshoot what caused the rough running engine, again, he didn't know that it was due to um, a lightning strike. He just 
had this rough running engine. And at 21,000 feet, it got to the point where he decided he voluntarily shut the engine down. It was still running. It just wasn't running very well. And he uh, voluntarily shut the engine down and was going to make a single engine landing because where he was was uh, over a place called Demopolis, Alabama. And it's, you know, it's not the biggest of cities, but they do have a very nice airport. And he happened to be right over the airport. So that's a perfect situation for a guy with a heavy airplane. He's got passengers on board. He's got baggage on board. He's got fuel on board. What a better place than to be able to just circle down and land on a very nicely paved runway. Unfortunately, rather than take the most expeditious route to the airport, he circled down. He had the airplane under control. He's talking to air traffic control. They take him to the airport. And really, the way he was circling down, because there was no wind he really had to contend with, he could land on its one runway. It's uh, basically an east-west runway. He could pick any direction he wanted to land. Well, for whatever reason, and it's unfortunately could never answer the question, he decided to fly a conventional pattern. And in doing so, he took the airplane. He was heavy, low, and slow. He's got flaps hanging. He's got gear hanging. He takes the airplane out about two miles. And during the course of the, the uh, reversal turn in the pattern, base to final, he got into uh, what we call a VMC stall spin. That is, he got below the appropriate speed for single engine maneuvering, lost control of the airplane, killed himself, his wife, and his five kids in a fiery crash. This is an accident where, from a piloting standpoint, this is almost textbook where you want, if you're going to have a problem and you're right over an airport and you can land right there, that's that's great. But why he flew the the B-52 pattern, as we call it, why he felt the need to do that, we're not really sure. Because during the part of the circle, he was already lined up coming out of part of his circle descent to then just roll out on final, on a two-mile final, put the gear down, continue downhill, and make a, a normal landing. Now, we've talked about this, John. And we've been critical of the NTSB on many occasions for basically going to the obvious cause, using the big red easy button, not getting it because they haven't gone above and beyond the obvious. And unfortunately, this is one of those cases where the NTSB, some of the data that was in their report was incorrect. And when they decided to analyze these facts, conditions, and circumstances, they didn't necessarily get it right. And what the board said in part of its analysis was the investigation revealed that the right engine failed when the camshafts stopped rotating after the camshaft gear experienced a fatigue fracture on one of its gear teeth. The remaining gear teeth were fractured in overstress and or were crushed due to interference contact with the camshaft gear. Spalling observed on the intact gear tooth suggested abnormal loading of the camshaft gear. However, the origin of the abnormal loading could not be determined. Their probable cause was the pilot's failure to maintain airplane control during a single-engine approach and his failure to fly an appropriate traffic pattern for a single-engine landing. That part is pretty much true. Contributing to the accident was a total loss of engine power on the right engine due to a fatigue failure of the right engine cam gear, which is not true. One, the engine never failed. 
the pilot voluntarily shut down an engine because of rough, it was running rough. It did not fail, and it did not fail for the reasons that the board cited. And in getting involved in this particular accident and dissecting further the facts, conditions, and circumstances, and really understanding why that engine ran rough in, in concert with the environment that they were flying in, it became evident that the airplane had been struck by lightning. And you've been around airplanes all of your adult life, John. Yeah, I mean, probably what, since you had a pacifier in your mouth, you've been around <laughs> airplanes. You've seen airplanes that have had lightning strikes. We always talk about how insidious some of these lightning strikes are because they're not really evident. Some of them are very obvious. Some of them leave a pinpoint burn hole somewhere in a very innocuous place that you could truly overlook. And in this particular instance, this airplane took a lightning strike. They tore the engine down. It's obvious because that's how the board came up with some of this information. But they incorrectly analyzed the damage in the gears internal to the engine as being a fatigue failure when, in fact, it was a result of this lightning strike. And I know that you've looked at the mechanical aspects from some reports that really got into the description of what the damage was and what it was attributed to. Certainly. And, and you know, just calling it a lightning strike doesn't do it justice. All right. An engine that takes, that finds itself in the path of conductivity for lightning on an airplane mostly is going to have internal problems that are not apparent to the naked eye. So if you see an engine cowling with a lightning strike in it, you really need to take a good look at the engine to see if that lightning, in fact, stayed out on the outer pieces of the cowling, or did it, in fact, go into the engine. We get a lot of lightning strikes on propellers that end up traveling through the engine. And on the way through, that lightning is like an arc welder. Uh, and it can do two things. It can weld the pieces together, just like a, a, an arc welder will do in a welding shop. Or it can put, put so much electricity through there, generate so much heat, that it will melt certain pieces of the engine. You know, engines are not all steel. They're made out of a lot of aluminum and other materials. So you could uh, do considerable damage by passing high voltage electricity through it. And don't forget, lightning strikes are something on the order of 20,000 volts going through there. So it's it's significant. So it, an engine that takes a lightning strike most likely is going to be severely damaged inside. And while they may sometimes keep running, it's only a matter of time before they won't. And in this particular accident, the evidence that was identified as being fatigue was in fact just as you said, it was a welding of these gear teeth that then led to their failure. And then because the engine was still rotating, it was grinding up these gears. But it, it wasn't a true fatigue failure as we know it from either cyclic fatigue or some sort of metal fatigue or material fatigue. It was induced by the introduction of this arc welded high heat that was traveling through the engine from the lightning strike. You know, and none of that's in the NTSB report. You know, here's my frustration again that I experienced before going to the board, while at the board, and after the, my term at the NTSB, is that when we talk about maintenance issues and accidents here in the United States, they take the event up to the hangar door, 
and they stop. And they just say, oh, maintenance did this, or maintenance didn't, didn't do that, and walk away. And maintenance could certainly use the help of the NTSB to get the light of day on some of the issues that, are, that occur inside the hangar that only by the grace of God haven't resulted in accidents. But when they do, then they get the, the once over lightly and they never get addressed. And they're just sitting out there waiting to happen again. And they happen over and over and over. And we've got to break that chain. And I think that you brought up a good point early in the discussion. And that is you have to go beyond the obvious, especially as a maintenance tech who is responsible for determining whether or not there is a, you know, a, a real problem from this lightning strike. Yeah, it's one thing to learn or look for a burn through or a pinpoint hole or a flash burn from where you may have taken a lightning strike where it went in and then, of course, where it went out. But it's really about going beyond the obvious. Don't stop because, you know, like you just said, with that high voltage traveling through the airplane, I mean, while, you know, you have static wicks to dissipate it on, on a lot of the airplanes and now with all the electronics that are on airplanes today, you're going to fry a system, you're going to short a system, you're going to, you know, overpower a system. So there could be some adverse effect from that lightning strike besides the actual mechanical aspect. You could have induced some sort of problem that may not manifest itself for a day, a week, a month, you know, a year. And, and I think, you know, from you and I uh, having these discussions and you educating me, it is important that you don't just, you know, kind of like being a doctor, you go beyond just the symptom to see what else has transpired. Yes. And sometimes not obvious. I mean, I once had a lightning strike that blew every single light bulb inside the airplane. Now that, I can remember the engineers telling me that can't happen. Well, I'm sitting here with an airplane on the gate and all the lights, all the reading lights that were on, every light bulb that was on was, was cooked, was fried internally, right? So somehow the lightning struck the airplane and found its way into a wire bundle and caused all sorts of havoc. It didn't affect the instruments in the airplane, thank God. All right, but it just just uh, fried a whole bunch of light bulbs. So it's it's strange, and you have to go beyond. And we we had that airplane on the on the ground for a while as we went through every single system, trying to find out if it did any other damage, because it's, sometimes it's not obvious. And I think a couple of takeaways from this, at least you know from my perspective as a pilot, is that. If I know that I'm flying, I'm not out there chasing level six thunderstorms to fly through them or level fives. But if I know that I've operated an aircraft in and around an area of convective activity, we know a good friend of mine who studies uh, weather and lightning and, and that kind of stuff. I've learned a lot from a guy named Dr. Dave Straley. He talks about the transference of energy between thunderstorms. So you could be trying to shoot the gap between two large towering thunderstorms that may have your conventional 20, 30 mile spacing. But these thunderstorms have the ability to transfer energy between the two. So they, they basically merge, but leave a gap there. And of course, there's lightning and everything else. And just because you didn't fly into those clouds doesn't mean your aircraft hasn't been subjected to a lightning strike or at least, uh, you know, the, the energy in those, um, in those thunderstorms that could create a static 
event. And from a piloting perspective, it's important that if you know you've flown in that area, you should do a post-flight walk around just to see if, in fact, you took a hit somewhere. And you got to look in places, not just the obvious places, but you got to look for little pinholes, things that weren't there before, shouldn't be there, question like, why is there a little hole in my aileron? Or why is there a little mark like this in the aileron? Because that could have been some sort of strike. And then I think from a maintenance standpoint, John, and you can address this better than I, I take my airplane in for an annual. I would expect that, you know, uh, from a pilot perspective, I'm going to tell my mechanic, you know, hey, you know, I mean, I fly this airplane all the time. Do mechanics typically look for little holes like that to see if, you know, somebody took a lightning strike or do they, they look at it after somebody's told them, hey, I flew through a thunderstorm, look for this lightning strike? Well, on an annual, it calls for a detailed inspection. And although they call out a whole bunch of areas to look at, you're, you're uh, required to look at the whole airplane. And I know people that don't do that. They look at it in sort of a, a once-over lightly general look at it. And then I know other guys that take a good, uh, you know, an extra hour to, to look at, closely look at the airplane. And, uh, of course, they get criticized because that drives the cost up. And uh, we know what, what a, how expensive operating airplanes is. So there's a balance in between there. But certainly if there's any indication of a lightning strike, then they're going to go and look for it. Uh, because we know that if it came in, it came out, and it may have done damage in between those two points. Yeah. And like you said, you typically will see the lightning strikes on the propellers, the spinners. You know, I've seen them out at the wingtips near the strobes and that kind of stuff. Um, those are the more obvious places. But where there's an entrance hole, there's got to be an exit hole, and you got to find it. Yes. Yes. And nothing to be messed with because it can do a lot of damage. And including structural damage is just sitting there waiting for the loads to be raised in that area and it'll fail. And address real quick, John, the importance of static wicks. Uh, a lot of people, you know, especially general aviation pilots who don't really understand the purpose of the static wick. Some of them are stiff. They're kind of, you know, like a hard piece of plastic straw, if you will, that is intended to dissipate, uh, you know, static electricity, a lightning strike. And some of them look like, you know, they're, they're fluffy straw or string off the end of the wing. Talk about the importance of those static wicks. Well, regardless of the construction of the static wick, you know, whether it's at the hard type with a pointy, usually a piece of stainless steel that's, that's like a tip of a dot or a needle, or if it's a, the ones with the carbon fiber strands that hang out there, they're meant to, to give an easy path for the lightning to exit the airplane. So wherever it exits is where the damage is going to occur. So by having a static wick attached to the airplane structurally, it provides a path for that electricity to exit the airplane on this static wick, which is an expendable piece of material. In other words, it's inexpensive relatively to airplanes. It's not, it's not cheap, but it's inexpensive. And it's consumable. So if you do get a lightning strike, it makes it easy for the lightning to exit the airplane by that pathway. And even though you consume it in its exit, the damage is done to something that's very easily and, again, inexpensively to replace. 
And on the end of the wingtip, you usually have two, three, four, depending on the airplane design and what history has shown for damage out on the end of the wingtip or up in the tail. On the rudder, you'll see usually three or four of them on the rudder. There's one always in the rearmost point of the airplane. There's one, sometimes two. They're there just to help that lightning leave the airplane because the airplane is just the path for the electricity. Because you're in the air, it doesn't get grounded, so to speak. It doesn't go. You're relatively safe inside an airplane when lightning hits it because the lightning normally will travel around the outside of the airplane and exits someplace. If it comes in the tail, you're gonna, you can pretty well expect it's going to exit the tail. But when it comes in on the props, the engines, or someplace on the wing, or behind, oftentimes they'll come in just behind the cockpit. They're going to exit on the wing or, or out the back end. You just got to make it easy for them. You have bonding straps inside. You make it easy for the lightning to leave. And while we're talking about it, you know, we see, you know, every airplane out there or a lot of airplanes out there, of course, over the years, they're made out of metal. So, you know, they are a lightning magnet, if you will. What is the construction of the carbon fiber airplane? How does that dissipate lightning any different than a metal airplane? Do we need all of the uh, the static wick sources on a carbon airplane because of their construction and the way they're designed to dissipate static charges? Well, some airplanes have pieces of carbon all over them, but the 787 was the first commercial airplane that had a lot, the, the entire fuselage and wings are composed of composite material, and it's, it's usually carbon-based. So they, what they've done in building those pieces of the airplane, the, the uh, composite structure, they've put almost like screen material not so fine as a piece of screen that you would use on your patio, but a, a grid of conductive material inside the carbon structure that you see as an airplane to help direct and flow the lightning strike in and out of the airplane. So wherever it comes in, it provides a very good pathway for it to find a way out so it doesn't jump around inside the airplane causing unforeseen amount of problem. So that's the way that the 787 has addressed it. And I have not heard where they've had much trouble with lightning strikes on that airplane, but I'm sure uh, everybody from Boeing and the FAA and, and the operators were all watching that closely because the fuel tanks are in the wing and we get, we get strikes out on the wing. But to date, now that airplane has been around for a long time now, relatively a long time, and we haven't had any problems with lightning strikes that have come out so apparently it must work well well it, you know this is a, a timely subject right now because we are in the in the summertime flying and of course i mean we've been watching i, I took pictures the other day out here in colorado we had a gorgeous thunderstorm build up it topped out at sixty thousand feet and produced one heck of a lightning show out there and you know, when you look at the power of that lightning, I mean, one, it's always amazing. And, you know, you get into a period of awe um, just by the, the glories of Mother Nature. But you know how devastating it can be 
to operating in that environment. And sometimes I think we take that for granted, especially as general aviation pilots. I mean, you can still build up static electricity flying through a rain shower and things like that. And the more we know as pilots in the, in the environment and the, uh, you know, the elements of thunderstorm activity and convective activity, the better pilot we are because we know one, we, we at least have an expectation of what could happen, but two, the reasons why we need to try and avoid as much of that as possible, just because it can induce problems that one could be misdiagnosed. This rough running engine, it's obvious this pilot didn't know he took a lightning strike. He didn't know why. He could have, he could have started troubleshooting a fuel system or something else not knowing that had nothing to do with it and he was never going to regain power but he was wasting a lot of time diverting a lot of attention and you know that leads to loss of control that leads to a lot of things so i mean it's it is these little elements of a sequence of events that cause and contribute to accidents yes hopefully we can eliminate or educate enough people so that we can avoid an accident or two through these podcasts yeah. You know, the other thing that has pained me recently because I've I've had to work on a number of these accidents, one of the best airplanes, general aviation airplanes built out there has always been the Mooney. When it first came out, it was slick. It was anti-conventional. That is, it had a forward swept tail, if you will, and it just looked different. But um, the need for speed was satisfied because it was built for speed. They made improvements over the years. It's a great airplane. I've seen it operated a lot, especially out here in Colorado. It's a good performer. I've flown it. But one of the things that I've been working on in the recent past are a number of Mooney accidents because they've always been susceptible to water in the fuel. And one of the biggest contributions to water in the fuel, besides the fuel caps, which have a notorious history on those airplanes because they're recessed into the wing and you have to have proper O-ring seating. You can't let them crack and that kind of stuff because they will leak like a sieve, is the fact that on these Moonies, they're wet wing. That is that the fuel tank is integrated just like on many large aircraft, the internal part of the wing is the fuel tank, unlike having a rubber bladder in a lot of airplanes where you have the fuel tank inside the wing and it's just a big rubber bag that you fill with gas. And one of the things that we've noticed in a lot of these accidents, John, from a maintenance standpoint is that these, you know, these airplanes that have a wet wing weep. They tend to spring leaks and that kind of stuff because the sealant material that's put on in the factory to seal the tanks and, and keep them from leaking deteriorates over the years and, you know, heat cycles and all sorts of stuff. And then when the owner reports, hey, can you fix my tank? It's, you know, leaking gas. The mechanics, you know, those, those are very tight spaces. So you got to dump all the fuel out but you can't get your head in there. You can't get a flashlight in there and you can't get your fingers in there all at the same time to try and pinpoint where the leak is. And a lot of the time, these guys are putting in sealant blindly. And in doing so, they are covering up some very critical holes in the bottom of the wing ribs 
that are in the middle of these tanks. And those those holes that they're covering up are the drain holes that allow water to migrate, since water is heavier than fuel, allows the water to migrate from outboard inboard to the root so that the pilot during a preflight can drain it through the fuel sumps. And this trapped water outboard ends up, you know, getting sloshed around. It goes into suspension in the fuel when uh, when the airplane is both on the ground maneuvering and in the air and migrates its way down to the lowest point, which is the fuel sump. But it does so at the most inopportune time. And next thing you know, on takeoff, pilot takes off thinking that he's got clean gas, takes off, pitches up, you know, 100 feet, boom, engine quits. Yep. Those little passageways for the water to pass down underneath the ribs, they're not very big. They only raise up a little bit off the, and they're very easy to miss if you don't have a good view of what you're doing. And it's very easy for somebody to run sealant right over them in an attempt to, to uh, stop us a leak and, and cause additional problem. And these last few accidents, John, I mean, we, we've taken the wings apart, opened up the skins. And the majority of those uh, drain holes have been blocked by sealant. Yep. And no excuse for that. Yeah. And and I know that it's tight quarters. You know, you you talk about it all the time with airplanes. And yeah, they're tight quarters. But it's all about the discipline. You know, instead of just slapping it in there to get the airplane in and out and fix the problem, you got to make sure it's done right because you're putting people at risk. Well, today we have a lot more visual aids than we had Years ago, when I worked on GA airplane, uh, I, we don't have the tools that are available today. I mean, I was just looking not long ago in, in uh, Harbor Freight, and they have a handheld fiber optic scope for $170. I almost bought it. I did buy it. That's what I've been looking in these tanks with to see, you know, <laughs> how they're sealed. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's no excuse for a good mechanic or a good shop not having that kind of tool to help him be his eyes inside a tank or inside any area that he can't see. I was going to buy it just for conformity checks because when you have to do some of these conformity checks and you have to look up to get a serial number on a, one of the required components and you can't get your head up in there, you can't get your flashlight up in there, you just can't see all the number, you have to then remove it, which is pain in the neck. Where if you had a good fiber scope, you could get up in there and look around and get the number off of it, and you wouldn't have to remove it. So you save yourself some nuisance work. You save the owner some money because it takes time to take it off. Additionally, you've removed the possibility of having some unattended consequences of causing damage when you're re doing work on an airplane. You know, you talk about the sealant in the, in the wrong places. That's a good example of it. When you're doing a job, and because you did the job, you caused a problem that ultimately, in, in this case, caused an airplane to crash. But it's common in maintenance to cause as many problems as you fix when you open them up. You know, an airliner that goes in for a heavy maintenance visit, I mean, some of them have 100,000 man hours between the maintenance and modifications to these airplanes. That's a lot of work, and there's a lot of potential for mistakes to be made things to be not assembled properly. Things that were assembled properly may have got unassembled by an additional person later on doing some unrelated task and then didn't put it back together. We've seen that as well. 
So it's it, there's all sorts of things that happen in maintenance when you open up an airplane, when you have a lot of people working on them. It's always a challenge, and it's always difficult for supervisors and management on these facilities to pay attention to that detail because they're looking at the bottom line. They're looking at how many man hours are spent. They're looking at uh, getting the airplane out on time, and it's a problem. And we saw that with ValueJet. I mean, look at the... Yes, we did. Yeah. They were being charged, I think it was $25,000 a day penalty for every day the airplane was not delivered on time. They were at the point where they were going to do the whole airplane for, for nothing because there was so much work and they were so far behind. So it's a challenging business maintenance, challenging business. You know, you bring this up and while you were talking, I was just thinking about it because you were involved in, in these accidents and that was the Beach 1900 down in North Carolina that had the trim issues. You know, that airplane had been in maintenance. There had been a, a previous occurrence on a 1900 out of a uh, overhaul shop up in uh, the New England area where the guys, when they took the airplane, they supposedly did all their pre-flight checks, including the, quote, trim check, but they're doing it from the cockpit. Nobody's standing out there to make sure that the tab is moving in the in the same direction as the button. In at least one of those, if not both of those cases, they both had a trim problem that put the crew in a position of jeopardy all related back to maintenance. Yes. In fact, that's a good one. I'll pull that up and we'll, we'll talk about that on the next show or the one after it. Yeah, because I think those are those are critical because I've seen that in general aviation. I did a Piper Navajo that had dinged a wing. It was being flown by an air tour operator down in Arizona. They dinged a wing. They brought it up here to have the wing fixed. They took the wing off, replaced it, and putting the wing back on, when they were running the aileron cable out to uh, to the left aileron, they got the line, the aileron cables crossed. And when they hooked the bell crank up to the turnbuckles, they were crisscrossed. So when you turn the yoke left, both went up. When you turned it right, they both went down. Well, a lot of pilots, when they do a pre-flight, they turn the control yoke left. They look left to see what that aileron is doing, but they don't look to see the other one is moving the opposite direction. Yes, I've seen so much of that. It just it pains me to see that. You know, that's a good one. We'll do that on we'll do that on a previous on a next show or the one after. Because that's what's critical. I I mean, as much as I trust my mechanic, I don't trust him. You know, it's the old Reagan saying, "Trust but verify." And you know, I mean, I want to know what you did. I want to. You, you tell me where you turned a wrench because I want to be aware because if I get this airplane in the air, <laughs> I want to know what you touched because I'm going to have to get this airplane back down if, if it wasn't done right or it's broken or didn't get you know finished. Well, one, one of the things that mechanics do in troubleshooting is who was in there? What was the last work done? Because oftentimes that's where you're going to find the problem. Yeah. Well, Greg, this was a good show. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, again, these are the things, it's the little things. We, we, we talk about it all the time. Yeah. I mean, airplanes occasionally, and we can go back to 2001 and an American Airlines A300, where yes, the vertical stabilizer did separate from the airplane for a variety of different reasons. Those are extremely rare events. Airplanes just don't come apart in the air, but it's always the little things. It's the the insidious things. It's those things that are truly not obvious that put 
pilots and passengers and, and folks on the ground in a position of jeopardy. And it is incumbent that we in aviation, you know, maintain that high level of vigilance and operational discipline so that we catch these little things. We understand these little things so that we can make improvements or correct a situation such as on the 421 where, you know, it was misdiagnosed. I mean, the guy took a lightning strike. Okay. He should have operated the airplane. He was in a perfect position to put the airplane down safely without harming his family. And so while the lightning strike precipitated certain events, it didn't cause that airplane to crash. And that's the saddest part of this when you have a pilot who kills his whole family because he failed to just maintain operational discipline and exercise very, I mean, you didn't need to have Chuck Yeager type logic and flying skills. I mean, he was in a perfect position to land. Why he chose to fly this long drawn out pattern, dirty configuration, the gear hanging, the flaps hanging, hanging on one engine, trying to maneuver a heavy, low and slow to come back to the airport when all he had to do basically is line up with the runway coming out of his last turn, put the gear down and land. It's painful for us to see those kinds of things because these are the senseless accidents. But again, through these lessons learned as you and I talk about them and bring these to light, hopefully somebody is listening that, you know, you park this information on the hard drive back there in your head because you just never know when you're going to be in that position to have a have to make a decision like that or do some troubleshooting and come up with a good course of action. Well, Greg, on that note, I think we should cut this off, pick it up again on the next show. Very good, John. Well, as always to our listeners, we thank you for your input and we appreciate your emails and asking us questions. And again, I didn't want to give a lot away about the Eastern Airlines Flight 980 because we're going to have some very exciting shows coming down the road with this documentary. So we want to save the good stuff for the shows. But we do appreciate your feedback. So definitely drop us an email at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. Give us your thoughts, your feedback, good, bad, and indifferent. You're the ones that make our show successful, and we want to continue to build on that success with your input. So we always appreciate interacting with our listeners and, of course, hopefully attracting some sponsors so that we can take our shows to the next level, which uh, we have some really good plans. COVID-19 kind of slowed us down a little bit, but we'll get through it. And uh, we're going to make the improvements that we've been talking about. And so we look forward to all of that. So with that, my friend, you always have the last word. And it's always the same. Please, everybody, decision-making, 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 and fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.